Hello, I am Kevin Flick, and this morning we will be reading Acts 2, uh, 14 through 36. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the, def, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for he will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your, your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, and of, of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies my footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has raised him both Lord and, and, and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As some of you may remember back in January, I announced that we were going to be in a one-year-long series on the New Testament, the entire New Testament. That, of course, means that we can't drill down on each passage, 
but it does mean that we will consider an overview of books throughout the New Testament. And today, we consider for the second week in a row, and we'll come a couple more weeks, the book of Acts. So at the very beginning of the sermon, I, w- I want to say something that's kind of odd. Today, I'm preaching a sermon about a sermon, right? It must be what it's like to be a rhetoric professor, you know, speaking about speeches all the time. The point is, I want to speak about this sermon and see how it's a launching pad for everything that comes next in the book of Acts. Actually, in the book of Acts, more than any other book of the New Testament, the book of Acts records many speeches or sermons. Depending on how you count, there's probably 19 different sermons or speeches recorded in the book of Acts. Now, of course, those speeches or sermons are not recorded in their entirety, as this one was not. After all, Peter didn't preach a a two-and-a-half-minute sermon, right? So it's bigger than this. This is a summary. But here's what happened early on in the book of Acts. The disciples were told this. It was a prediction and a form of instruction. And the prediction was this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. For those of you who are inclined to outline books, I'll give you an outline. If you take a look at the book of Acts, it could be outlined with those three descriptions. Chapters 1 through 7 are the gospel in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 11 are the gospel spread to Judea and Samaria. And chapters 12 through 28 is the gospel spread to the world, the whole known world. That was the initiative of the book of Acts. And what we have is Peter's sermon that launches the proclamation of the gospel to the whole world. So, let's consider this first. What's the context of Peter's sermon? The context of Peter's sermon is it was to a primarily Jewish audience. Because they were there on the day of Pentecost, which is one of the three major feasts in the Jewish tradition. First there was Passover, they already experienced. Then there was Pentecost. And then there was the feast that is often called Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes Feast of Booths. So they were there on the day of Pentecost celebrating one of three major feasts. And as they were there, they were anticipating, thinking about, hoping for, longing for the coming of the Messiah. That's what they were all about, the coming of the Messiah. And they were almost certain that the Messiah was going to come as a political hero. The Messiah was going to come to deliver them from the heavy boot of Rome. If that's the context, these people steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, what was the message that Peter proclaimed in that context? Well, 
one part of his message, not as bold in this part, but later on, is that the political Messiah you were anticipating is not here. Oh, the Messiah's here, but he's not political. The Messiah's here, and he's a king. But he's not on a white horse. He's not leading an army. He's not going to rescue you from Rome. That in itself must have been a devastating message. But it plays out throughout the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts. Jesus, Peter says, is that Messiah you longed for. And he demonstrated his messianic nature by signs and wonders and miracles. So that you could see this was Messiah. And we, speaking of the disciples and those gathered there in this proclamation, we were witnesses to all this. We've seen it happen. This is the Messiah. Furthermore, Peter and the rest of the apostles consider that the message concerning Jesus seems to be in every page, even of the Hebrew Scriptures. And sometimes they make references that seem kind of odd to us. You might say, why does Peter or Paul refer to this particular passage and see Jesus in it? They lived in a different world. They lived and breathed the Old Testament Scriptures. And they lived and breathed and anticipated the Messiah. And so they saw him all over the Old Testament Scriptures. I say that because in this sermon, Peter actually starts talking about David. And he's talking about Psalm which is Psalm 16. And he's talking about a promise that David made about how God would not allow his anointed to stay in the grave and that death would not overcome him. And Peter says to them, in effect, do you think David was talking about himself? Of course he wasn't. Because David is in the grave. We know where his tomb is. He died a patriarch's death and was buried in a patriarch's grave. And he's still there. No, this wasn't about David when David penned those words in Psalm 16. This was a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. That God wouldn't abandon him to the grave. As a matter of fact, he said... There's something historical right before your eyes. Here's what's historical. You, you are responsible for his death. But here's something else that's historical. God planned it all along. It was the plan of God that the Messiah should come and suffer and die and be raised again. Didn't sound very messianic to them. And you participated in that plan, and thus you are guilty. Are are you feeling a disconnect? This was the plan of God, and I participated in the plan, and now you're pointing the finger at me? If you don't feel the disconnect, I hope you do. That disconnect, by the way, is all over the Scripture. It's what I call the dialectic of sovereignty. 
that is that God plans and initiates his plans and we enter into the plans and the activity of his plans carried out by us are all often, often sinful activities for which we are guilty. You see it in divine sovereignty all over the scripture. I almost hesitated to mention that disconnect because that's a huge theological issue. One that I would be delighted to explore, but not now. It's there though, isn't it? You know what happened with this message? The book of Acts says that when they heard these words, they were cut to the heart. It's the only place in the Bible that that particular phrase was used. Cut to the quick, cut to the heart, right to the conscience. And they said, just like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, what must we do to be saved? We stand guilty. What must we do? And Peter said what the apostles have always said what the gospel has always proclaimed. Repent and be baptized. You were cut to the heart because you know you're sinful. Repent of your sins and be baptized. By the way, that invitation to repent and be baptized, one part of it might have made sense to them. We get it, we're guilty. We were there on the day he was crucified. We shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But be baptized? There was only one category of people who were baptized in their context. It was people who were baptized into the Jewish faith and they were faith and they were Gentiles. So you're asking us to be baptized as Jews who have the heritage of Abraham to repent and be baptized like the Gentiles? They must have been troubled, but they did repent, and they were baptized. This, this repentance that Peter calls for is, is a word called metanoia, which means a radical change of one's affections to turn towards another. Repent. Radically change your affection towards Jesus Christ. Then Peter says, quoting Isaiah chapter chapter 57, Peter says, this is for you and for your children and for those who are far off. You, your children, and those who are far off. I want to show you a slide. If somebody will put it up for me. There we go. See the arrows, where the people came from on the day of Pentecost? Peter was preaching to people from all those areas of the Roman Empire, which was the known world. And on that day, he preached this message. And on that day, he used Isaiah 57 to say, this message is not just for you, it's also for your children, and it's also for those who are far off. What did he mean? You might, like me, 
want to imply that Peter meant that this gospel, this good news, was for everybody. All the Gentiles too. In other words, he was saying, turn around the arrows and go back out. That's your mission. It's for everyone, including Gentiles. Actually, that would be improper. Not because it wasn't true, but because Peter didn't know it was true yet. Peter doesn't understand this until Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius when the sheet comes down. And he says, oh my goodness, this gospel's for the Gentiles as well. So what in the world is Peter saying? He's saying something through the words of Isaiah that are the inspiration of the Holy Spirit without complete knowledge himself of what his prophetic utterance meant. I, I want to do theology so bad, but I can't. I'm just going to tell you one thing, okay? Just one thing. We have to be careful that our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture does not rest exclusively on authorial intent. You may say, what does that mean? On the intent of the author. It does. But that is not the full extent of the inspiration of Scripture. Peter did not know the full, not just impact of his words, he did not know the full meaning of his words. Because the Spirit of God takes prophetic utterances and opens them up to the minds of people who follow Christ by faith. And we have, as the church, one aha moment after another, as Peter did when Cornelius' story was a part of his reality. I wonder, did he look back at his sermon if he's like me, he would throw his sermon away. And I like to look back at my sermons. But if he looked back at his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he might have said to himself, oh, that's what I mean and didn't even know it. That the gospel is for the Gentiles too. Paul later applies this same passage from Isaiah 57 in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, when he says the Gentiles have been brought into this family of faith. That was the message, in short. And there was a lot more of it that we don't know. If that was the message, what's the mission? Here's the mission. Take that map and turn the arrows around. Leave Jerusalem and go into the world. Church, this gospel... It's not just for you. It's for everybody. Everybody. Even those that you may see as persecutors are those who despise you. It's for them too. This day opened up a new day in history. It is the most amazing event so far since the resurrection. This is not the creation of a new religion. 
that we call Christianity. In fact, it's an opening of the door of the promises of Abraham to bless the whole world. This particular sermon and the activity on the day of Pentecost are the most inclusive activity, statement in the history of all religions. With this statement, Peter is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Christ is everyone's Messiah. Christ has opened the door to eternal life. Everybody needs to hear this story. Whenever we think of that message in its simplicity, our question ought to be, how does it apply to us? I'm going to suggest several things. It applies to us this way. We ought to be people whose singular motivation it is to say, let me, let me introduce you to Jesus. This is a man, Jesus, who's accredited by God. Signs and wonders and miracles. And honestly, the greatest miracle of all is that he changed my heart. It's a new birth. I didn't want him. He pursued me. That's a miracle. I want to introduce you to Jesus because he's the one who brings peace to the world. I want to introduce you to my Jesus who is the one through his sacrificial death on the cross redeems everyone who calls on his name. I want to introduce you to my Jesus, whose invitation transcends nations and tribes and race. It transcends male and female, slave and free, high-born, low-born, poor and rich. Those categories mean nothing to Jesus because he loves all of you I just want to introduce you to Jesus. You know, um, when you really see Jesus, it's kind of hard to turn away from him. Oh, I know people have. After all, he was crucified. But when people see Jesus and and. The things that obscure him are pulled back. He's overwhelmingly compelling because he loves them. He invites them in and he gives them the promise of life. And he satisfies their deepest longings. That's who Jesus is. It's true when People encounter Jesus, they're often cut to the heart because his holiness shines a light on their sins and 
They're moved to repent. That's not the opposite of love. It's incredible love. His appeal is undeserving grace. When you realize your sinfulness and you realize there's nothing you can do about it, and you realize you don't deserve the grace of God, and then you meet Jesus. (laughs) And it comes to you free. That's why he's so compelling. How do people see him? Well, when we witness to his life-changing presence in our life, that's when they see Jesus. How do they see Jesus? When they hear how much we love him. It's contagious, my friends. How do they see Jesus? When they see, as the gospel said, how much we love one another. Then they see Jesus. What blinds people to Jesus? When his followers are full of anger and condemnation. What blinds people to Jesus? When Christ's followers fight and don't love one another. What blinds people to Jesus is when labels become more important than the message. When Jesus is linked to nationalism or patriotism or political ideologies or racism or other forms of cruelty, people are blinded to Jesus. When legalism eclipses the message of grace, people are blinded to Jesus. And this one, I think, perhaps bothers me the most. When Christians, that's me, are smug or self-righteous and act like they actually deserve the grace of God then people are blinded to Jesus. Here's the practical reality. If we're going to be the church that the book of Acts calls us to be, we must return to being, being Christ's followers. Not just talk about it. We must return to the basics of the gospel and cast away all the things that clutter it. We must remember that the gospel is not about nationalism or patriotism or politics. It is the good news for the whole world. No matter where you come from, 
or what your ideology is. It's for everyone. We must live the gospel as followers of Christ, united around the essentials. And we must invite others to be Christ followers. Basically, I love Jesus because he's done so much for me. You want to join me in following him? That's it. Jesus said something while he was on the earth that's really unnerving to me. <laughs> Almost wish he hadn't said it some days. <laughs> He looked at his disciples and vicariously he looked at you and he said, you are the light of the world. How's that for a heavy weight? You're the light of the world. Don't mess it up. Don't snuff it out. Let it shine in all its perfect purity, and glory, and people will see Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. And we confess our almost inexhaustible ability to cloud it up. To make it murky, either by our own lives or by what we say and our attitude towards others, or by labels we've come to embrace that actually don't enhance but eclipse the gospel. So, Lord, Clear our minds. Clear our heads. Purify our hearts. And get us back to the basics. The basics. of introducing people to a loving Savior and inviting them with us to follow Him. And as we do that, Lord, we will be the church that You've called us to be. With all our flaws and our failures, we will be the light of the world. Thank you for the responsibility and the grace to do it. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.